1: Welcome welcome to the uh, weekend edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, we had a important week of shows, uh, a lot of interesting discussions built primarily around Mike Hickman, the 43-year-old Pee Wee football coach, uh, murdered in cold blood at a Pee Wee football game in Lancaster, Texas. Uh, We started the week off setting the stage for a week-long conversation about Mike Hickman, uh, just reacting to the news. And so on Monday, here's my fire starter setting the stage for a week of discussion about Mike Hickman. Uh, Corporate media has made it taboo to discuss the cultural rot at the root of black men randomly killing each other. So you're unlikely to see a Say His Name campaign focused on Mike Hickman. Hickman is unworthy of the kind of deification corporate and social media reserved for heroic black men harmed while resisting arrest. Hickman is no George Floyd, Michael Brown, Dante Wright, Rayshard Brooks, Jacob Blake, or Eric Garner. Hickman was a father, husband, active local church member, a former running back of the University of North Texas, and a Little League football coach. Saturday night in Lancaster, Texas, an opposing coach gunned down 43-year-old Mike Hickmon in front of 80 Pee Wee football players. Following a scrimmage between players nine years and under, the adult coaches engaged in an on-field brawl sparked when someone kicked the ball Hickman attempted to pick up from the ground. According to police, Yakub Tlaib, the brother of a former NFL star, ended the melee, shooting Hickman dead. Hickman's nine-year-old son was, one, was on the field at the time. So was Akib Tlaib, the former five-time Pro, Bowl, Pro Bowler, Super Bowl champion, NFL broadcaster, and brother of the alleged shooter. The tragedy that befell Mike Hickmont is illustrative of a problem plaguing black neighborhoods that we've been groomed to ignore. It's racist to discuss the self-hatred that provokes black men to cavalierly settle disagreements with gun violence. According to approved media wisdom, the random senseless murder of black men by other black men within black communities is a proximity crime that can only be solved by money, Integration, and the passionate affection of white people. Mike Hickman would be alive today if white police officers properly loved black people. So would Hickman's sister, Jennifer. Last July, Jeffrey Allen Scott confessed to murdering Jennifer Hickman, a 37 year old middle school teacher, volleyball coach, and mother of one daughter. Jennifer played basketball at Texas Southern University. She earned a master's degree in education from Concordia University, Texas. So let's do the math here. Within a 13 month span, in separate incidents, a brother and sister who used athletics to earn college degrees and dedicated themselves to helping young people were murdered by black men. A brother and a sister murdered within 13 months of each other in separate incidents. But we won't shout their names. They're victims of proximity homicides. Those murders don't matter. There are no white people to directly blame. Lancaster is a working class suburb approximately 15 minutes south of Oak Cliff, Dallas. That's the area where Mike and Jennifer Hickman grew up. 65% of Lancaster's 41,000 residents are black, 23% are Hispanic. The city has produced a handful of journeyman NFL players. Its most famous native is perhaps former Duke basketball player Thomas Hill, who was a shooting guard for the Blue Devils during the Christian Leighton or Grant Hill era. Akeeb and Akib Talib, raised by their single mother, grew up in Richardson, Texas. Richardson, Texas, a northern suburb of Dallas. 25 miles separate Richardson from Lancaster. Tlaib and Hickman fit the corporate media's proximity profile. So what's the solution? Should black people distance themselves from each other? Given that Aqib earned more than $70 million during his 12-year NFL career, it's hard to blame poverty for Yakeeb shooting Hickman. Maybe poverty and proximity don't explain the astronomical murder rate impacting the life expectancy of black men. Maybe it's a culture of self-hate and disrespect. Maybe the pursuit of white love doesn't cure black self-hate. Maybe the matriarchal culture adopted by American black people foments emotional men with no impulse control. It's just a random thought. Popular culture has certainly normalized the denigration and destruction of black men. It's so normalized that American media companies seem to prefer black broadcasters with street credibility. At this time, we don't know Akib's role in, Michael, in the Mike Hickman tragedy. We know that Akib was there. Based on Akib's history, it's hard to imagine a fight breaking out and Akib choosing to sit it out. Let, let, let's, let's go through this. In 2008, he engaged in a brawl at the NFL Rookie Symposium. In 2009, he was arrested after an altercation with a taxi driver. In 2011, Akeeb and his mother were suspected of firing a gun at his sister's boyfriend. In 2017, Aqib and Raiders receiver Michael Crabtree had an ugly on-field skirmish. Aqib snatched a gold chain from Crabtree's neck. Shortly after his 2020 retirement, Fox Sports hired Aqib to lead to broadcast NFL games. Within the last few months, Amazon named Aqib part of their team to broadcast Thursday Night Football. Corporate media love black men with street credibility. It's all part of promoting a culture of violence and disrespect among black people who live in close proximity to each other. That's why gangster rappers such as Jay-Z, Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and Ice-T are presented as spokesmen for the black community. And Ben Carson, Thomas Sowell, and Clarence Thomas are framed as sellouts. You can discern the agenda of corporate and social media by the names black people are told to shout, the victims were told to idolize, and the men deemed worthy of an outpouring of emotion. Mike Hickman, a college graduate, a father, a husband, an active member of his church, a volunteer football coach, meets all the criteria to be regarded as a pillar of his community. But he's no George Floyd. That speaks to a deadly cultural rock. Tuesday, we interviewed and talked with uh, three assistant coaches that work with Mike Hickman. that were eyewitnesses uh, to what happened. Uh, to Mike Hickman at that Pee Wee football game, shot and killed by Yaquib Talib, Akib Talib's brother. We heard from the assistant coaches about Akib Talib's role in escalating a tense situation. Uh, I think this part of the conversation is with Mark West, who I believe was their offensive coordinator. It's a fascinating discussion. Well, uh, Mark West, uh, welcome to the program. And and first, I'd like for you to talk about uh, your relationship with Mike Hickman. How long have you known him, and how, how great was it to work with him? And and just Mike's relationship with his son, who was you all's quarterback.
0: I know Mike for about mm, three to four years. Um, Mike was a Mike was a family man. You I mean? He, was there for his, he had three kids. He was there for his two daughters and his son. And he loved watching his son play the game of football. Mike was the kind of guy that he would do anything for any kid. You know, he was just there. He was a good family man. And this shouldn't happen to a man like this. He was just, Mike was there and he loved to see his son play football, you know. And he was just there to be there and he just, he loved the game.
1: And so, uh, from the outside, I've, I have played football all the way through college, I've been a sports journalist since 1990. It, it seems like Little League football has become more emotional and parents more involved and in disputes and arguments among coaching staffs and parents seem more pervasive. Is that the case from what you see and are witnessing as a Little League coach?
0: Yes, yes, yes. It becomes more about the parents, more about the coaches than it is about the kids. And then, unfortunately that's that's what we have come to. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be about teaching these kids to be young men and you know, when I played football, you know, that that's what it did. It teaches you, you know, to be responsible, you know, to show up and be accountable. And now it becomes more especially with the social media. I just That's just a killer right there. Social media, brag about this, this kid is this, this team is this, this. And, you know, we didn't fail into it a little bit. I can't just make it like it's just them and not us. But it just, it becomes ugly instead of just doing the, you know, the right thing for the kids, you know, helping them with their shoulder pads, mouthpieces, and getting the kid in the correct stance and things of that nature.
1: And so it's hard for some of us to believe. How did a scrimmage? This wasn't even an actual game. How did North Dallas United's coaching staff get this
0: agitated at the officiating crew over a scrimmage? It's a preseason game, and um, you know we do you know preseason games before we do um, our seasons and whatever. And what happened was it was like fourth and seven, fourth and six. And our running back had got like uh, he was like sh- stopped like two yards um, before the first down, but the referee had blew the whistle. But their kids constantly kept hitting the kid as he was still standing up, and he blew the whistle once, twice, three times, and come the fourth whistle, he threw a flag. So when he threw a flag, um, their side was over there saying, "Hey, you're showing favoritism to the to this." you know, to us, and we're like, we're at y'all event. This is their event. They hired these referees. So why would the referees show any favoritism to us, and you're the one that's going to, at the end of the day, be paying them? So they couldn't accept that. So the next play, when we lined up, they moved it up 15 yards because, you know, our sportsman, like, moved it up 15 yards. We ran a play. A kid ran up the middle and scored a touchdown. Once he did that, they was livid. And it just – it went from there. And when we thought it calmed down, it didn't calm down.
1: So what did you – what did you see in terms of what precipitated Mike's confrontation with their coaching staff? Uh, You know, it it sounds – Mike's son was the quarterback – it was his football that was out, left out on the field that Mike was trying to retrieve. From your recollection, from what you saw, not from what you heard, what happened?
0: Okay, from what I saw, you know, when the game is over, because the referees, once we were going to line up for the extra point to leave, the, old, um, the one that played in the league, I don't, you know, their names go, but the one Akeem. that played in the league to leave, uh, he came over there to the referee saying everything besides calling the man a good man said everything talking to this man or whatever walked over there to our sideline because the referee was talking about was on our sideline so after that the head ref called the game said hey the game is over yet. our ball was still right there where you leave it for the extra point they picked up our ball Mike was doing uh, what you would call the sticks or whatever. That's why he had the stick in his hand, um, you know, the first down, second down, the markers, because, you know, they didn't have nobody to do it, so Mike volunteered to do it. Mike went over there to go get um get our ball as he was trying to get the ball. One of the parents had kicked the ball. Mike was still trying to retrieve it. And as he got the ball or whatever, and he was walking back through them. They were talking. Mike was talking. Next thing you know, they started pushing and shoving. Mike was trying to do everything he can to defend himself. We was at the 50 because that's what we do after every game. We line up at the 50. You know, when the game is over and we go shake hands. So we were still at the 50. They were more or less up there about the 25 or the 20-yard 20, 20 line. When we saw that there was, you know, a tussle going on and they was getting after um Coach Mike our coaching staff start heading that direction. As we start heading that direction, you can see the brother out of his waist, pull the gun out, and never in my wildest dreams did I ever think he was going to actually shoot it. You know, I hadn't seen a gun before, but never in my wildest dreams when I saw that gun did I think he was going to shoot it. As he pulled it out and we run up, Next thing you know, you hear everybody on our side ran back, you know, ran out, you know, to try to get out of the way, you know, to get the kids out of the way to get the kids, you know. And it was about I want to say about a good between three to five shots after we got the kids and people was taking the kids to the parking lot. The parking lot was every bit about 100 to 200 yards away from where our cars was. So we get the kids over there. We come back. Mike is laying on the ground.
1: Did you see? There, obviously, everybody seems to have a consistent story about Akib walking across the field, engaging with the referees, bantering back and forth with the referees. Uh, Heath says, Heath May says he saw Akib take a swing at
0: at Mike Hickman. Did you see that? Yes, he he swung. He didn't connect, but he swung. And Mike was trying to get use the down marker to get them off of him. Now, he did. Now, who he hit, I can't say. But he did swing. But he didn't, you know, when, as you're looking at it. But I, as, he, as I'm saying, as he's swinging at Mike, you, you're running and everything's going. But I did see him, you know, try to, you know, throw a punch or whatnot. It just, everything was happening so fast. It just, and then by the time we got up there close to Mike, we see his brother coming around and he pulls the gun out of his waist and he, you know, he fired the gun. And then I'm at least thinking, like, okay, hopefully he just fired the gun up in the air and not at nobody. And when we came back, Mike was on the ground. You know, and He's this. At, I'm sorry. Go th- ahead. This could have been totally avoided. When the referees called the game and it was over with, he could just. By him being who he is, his side would have listened to him. You know, his side respects him, and he knows this. And from what we was told afterwards, the team before had some issues and somebody had showed a gun. If we would have known that that was going on, we would have never, I mean never, put our kids, our parents in that situation. But we did not know.
1: And so you're saying in the game before your game, yes. there
0: was rumors yes. or discussion that someone had shown a gun. Yes. The guy, that, um, there was a coach and one of the parents had got his phone number. There was a coach that came and he had told us the reason why their game ended was because somebody was flashing a gun, showing, proving that they had a gun. So, we did not know that. We knew that there was a scuffle, but we did not know that there was anything of a gun being shown. So, and I just, it's just, you know, when it's the this. So, hold
1: hold for one second. Hold for one second. I just want, there was a scuffle
0: in the game before y'all's game. Yeah, it was a scuffle before the game, before ours, yes. You know, but in Pee Wee, that's not like, let me just say this, that's not like uncommon, you know. That's not you know that happens, but they don't mean that it it evolves to you know to the next game because it was a totally different team it was it wasn't the same team playing, maybe the same organization, but not the same team playing,
1: and so tying that together with with what you're saying is uh Heath said that in the previous game, Jakob actually coached in the previous game,
0: yes, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And so maybe there's just leftover, and we're way off in the speculation, but there was a scuffle in that previous game, and this seems like leftover residue, a heated afternoon of events leads to a tragic ending.
0: Yes, unfortunately, yes. And, you know, I haven't been able to sleep since that night and i've been trying to do everything i can to maybe stay busy and everything what i what we could have done different you know it just you know there's a there's a young man right now that's going to grow up in this world without his father you know a young lady he has a daughter that's a freshman she's on varsity um volleyball you know he loved to watch his kids play sports he also was a grandfather you know he just had his grandson over there the other last weekend, you know, and they took this away within minutes
1: the, the and again, you've well, you said you've known Mike for three or four years uh it we also have learned and come to find out Mike's sister two years ago in none related to football, Jennifer Hickman, one of his sisters had been murdered. This family has been touched by some unbelievable tragedies in a very short time.
0: Yes. And he, me and Mike talked every day. I knew his, you know, his break schedule. You know, he worked at DFW Airport and we talked on his break at 8.30. We talked on his break at um, 11.30. You know, then he gets off at 2.30 and we on the phone as he was driving home through traffic. And, um, you know, and then he talked about his sister. He loved his sister. You know, it still bothered him, you know. And his son played basketball because of his, you know, auntie showing him how to play basketball in the backyard and this and that. And his son is just a all-around athlete. I mean, whatever he does, he just he's just good at it. You know, basketball, he just came back from Junior Olympics in North Carolina. His dad took him to North Carolina for Junior Olympics, and his four-by-one came in second in the nation for the 10 and under. So This is a man that does, you know, everything for his family. You know, he was a guy that one of the kids needed a helmet, and he don't work on Fridays, but he chose to work on Fridays so he can have extra money to pay for a kid's helmet. And that's what they took away.
1: On Wednesday, we talked about the importance of identity and adopting an identity that actually serves you in a positive way in the long run. Akib Talib adopted a negative identity. He wanted to be a gangster. And eventually, that led and contributed to a brawl that took the life of Mike Hickman. Here's my Wednesday Firestarter. 25 years ago, when I entered local talk radio in Kansas City, I gave myself a nickname, Big Sexy. It was a double entendre. As a talk show host, it represented that I had a big mouth and spewed sexy opinions. Off air, it represented my narcissism, hedonism, and delusion. It was an embrace and celebration of my enormous size and sexual lust. The nickname exemplified my toxic level of self-idolatry. I built an identity based on my sin. A seemingly fun and harmless nickname normalized and justified my gluttony and a social life that led me away from marriage and family. The identities we promote matter. I bring this up as it relates to Akib Tlaib, the former NFL star, intricately involved in a peewee football brawl that led to the shooting death of mike hickman talib's brother yakub talib has been arrested for the shooting video evidence and eyewitness accounts suggest Akib talib sparked the brawl no rational person can feign surprise that Akib talib was involved in a deadly confrontation Akib talib spent the better part of two decades projecting an identity and image of himself as a football playing thug. He wanted everyone he came in contact with to know he was about that life. About that life is urban slang for having an ostentatious lifestyle involving drugs, guns, and violence. It's an image commercial rappers embrace and emote. Tupac Shapur, Shakur tatted thug life across his stomach. Snoop Dogg celebrates his membership in the Crips gang. So did Nipsey Hussle. Gunmen murdered Shakur and Hussle. Snoop faced murder charges years ago. Rappers attract the same negative violent energy their music promotes. The identities they embrace shorten their life expectancies. That's why football and basketball's adoption of rap as their musical soundtracks is dangerous and problematic. That's why black culture being so heavily defined by hip-hop music is dangerous and problematic. The very identity we have embraced is killing us. In 2007, Aqib Tlaib starred on one of the greatest Kansas football teams of all time. Under the direction of coach Mark Mangino, the Jayhawks compiled a 12-1 record and beat Virginia Tech in the Orange Bowl. I covered those Jayhawks as a sports columnist for the Kansas City Star. Tlaib was the best player on that team. He also had the reputation as the worst person on that team. Even as a collegian, Tlaib wanted everyone to know he was about that life. His reputational choice is not uncommon uncommon among black football and basketball players. They adorn themselves in prison tattoos, sag their pants, braid their hair, drape themselves in gold chains, and dabble in freestyle rap. Too many black jocks wanna be black rappers. It's no secret. Back in July, NFL quarterback Teddy Bridgewater made a social media post complaining about his peers posing as gangsters. Writing on Instagram, tired of seeing football players portray this tough guy image or pretend he's a gangster. You went to school, attended those classes, and some even got their college degree. You might have a 1.5% a chance of professional football players that on that. But the remaining 98.5% are only football tough. So don't wait until you inherit this legal money from the league to decide you want to be tougher and portray a street image because it's kids that's looking up to everything we do. Plus, it's someone sitting in a cell or posted in the hood who might have been just as hood as you that would advise you otherwise. LeBron James liked that tweet and promoted it, or liked that social media message and promoted it. But let's be clear here. Akeeb Talib courted the gangster image long before he became an NFL millionaire. What's troublesome is his unwillingness to discard that image. What's really troublesome is that there is little cultural pressure for him to adopt a more positive reputation and image. Popular culture celebrates the bad guy. From Tony Soprano to Jay-Z, the American zeitgeist rewards the unrepentant criminal. Akib Tlaib was involved in a series of unflattering on and off the field situations that tarnished his reputation. In 2008, he engaged in a brawl at the NFL Rookie Symposium. In 2009, he was arrested after an altercation with a taxi driver. In 2011, Akib and his mother were suspected of firing a gun at his sister's boyfriend. In 2016, Tlaib attacked Tennessee Titans receiver Harry Douglas on the sideline. After the game, Tlaib told reporters that he would beat Douglas's ass the next time he saw them at their shared agent's office. In 2017, Akib and Raiders receiver Michael Crabtree had an ugly on-field skirmish. Aqib snatched a gold chain from Crabtree's neck. People in the media started calling Tlaib to Tlaib two chains after he did that, had that violent confrontation with Michael Crabtree. Despite all that, somehow Fox Sports and the NFL were comfortable handing Tlaib a broadcasting job. His shady background legitimized and enhanced his credentials. He was a coveted broadcaster. Amazon plans, or at least plan, to make him part of the NFL's Thursday Night Football broadcast this season. The culture is reinforcing the message that bad is good. The identity you adopt locks you into a set of expectations you must meet. Yesterday, I talked extensively with a group of coaches who worked alongside Mike Hickman, the man Yakib Tlaib shot and killed. The coaches, to a man, all said Akib Tlaib could have easily de-escalated a very tense situation. The reality is, Tlaib's reputation made that impossible. His identity dictates that he runs towards trouble, not away from it. He's always been about that life, the lifestyle unafraid to turn violent over a simple verbal disagreement. It's a lifestyle that interprets disrespect as worthy of the death penalty. The sports world's partnership with hip-hop culture undermines men like Akib Talib from evolving past the self-destructive identities they adopt as kids. The NFL and NBA reinforce the "about that life" mentality that will likely cost Akib Talib his freedom and Akib Talib his financial fortune. American culture is so toxic at the moment that it won't surprise me if the NFL, Fox Sports, and Amazon play Snoop Dogg's Murder Was the Case as intro music for Akib Talib.
0: You
2: ready?
1: Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy.
0: Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes!
1: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy.
0: Fall guy. That's what the poster
2: said.
1: See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? No, nope. because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Thursday, we continued our conversation and and unpacked a different layer of this story about. What's going on in peewee football? What's going on in sports in general? The partnership with hip hop music and gangster rap music and the impact it's having on kids, they're being groomed for a self-destructive lifestyle. We talked about it on Thursday. We're really grooming kids into a culture of death and it extends beyond a sexual death, uh, an identity death, uh, just the way to object uh, to God's will, vision, philosophy, uh, vision for us is all part of a death culture that kids are being groomed into. And and so there's an anti-God theology, an anti-God worldview that kids are being groomed into and one of the strongest things that I think stronger than all the drag queen stuff we've seen, perhaps stronger than uh, the crazy purple haired teachers that are uh, putting the gay pride flags in their in their schools and all that. stuff. those guys can all take a backseat to rappers and to rap music and the music industry and the grooming that we have been, that's been going on for 30, 40 years in the rap music world. And no one wants to talk about it because that's black culture. And if you talk about rap culture, that's racist. And if you criticize it, if you analyze it, you're racist and you just don't like black people. Well, it's hard to accuse me of not liking black people because I'm black, I like black people. I don't have a problem. The reason I'm objecting and have always objected to this style, form of music, even again, I admit, makes you want to dance. When I was young, party to it the whole night. The entire time though, I was critical of the lyrics and like, why does it have to be this? Why can't it be rapper's delight? Why can't it just be fun party music? Why did we allow NWA to turn rap music into gangster rap music, into, into uh, obscene violence and sexual depravity and, and just, why did we let them turn rap music into lyrical pornography? without objection, without real objection. And our kids are being groomed and bathed in it, and you can see it crystal clear in the sports world. And so I I wanna start here with a video that Barstool Sports uh, tweeted out yesterday to try to tell you what's going on at these peewee football games, what's going on at these seven-on-seven Uh, football uh, summer tournaments, what's going on in summer and AAU basketball and has been going on for years. If you listen to the music being played at these child sporting events, it's now, you go to high school football games and you'll hear the rap music and the gangster rap music throughout the stadium. The sports world has been bathed in hip-hop music. And so yesterday, Barstool Sports uh, tweeted out a video of a Pee Wee football team taking the field, and I think Barstow called this might be the greatest youth football walkout of all time. Uh, they're walking out to a 1995 mystical uh, rap song called Here I Go. Uh, let's play the video. <laughs>
0: They came all the way from May
2: City to get
1: their ass beat. Period. Uh and if if I wish we had played to the end, I think you hear a woman saying, Talk that shit, big baby. And these are a group of babies, kids, playing football. The young boy is, you know, they came all the way to get their ass beat, blah, 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 blah. It's all been bathed in profanity and, and uh, uh, hyper-aggressive, violent music. It's all been bathed in that. This is commonplace. I can guarantee you, and I've talked to people that told me this, but again, I don't have it completely reported out, but I guarantee if we went to Lancaster, Texas, where they were playing those scrimmage football games, I guarantee you the stadiums were filled with gangster rap music. And we think this has no impact and we're just wrong. This is part of the grooming process of grooming our children into a violent, pornographic, debaucherous, materialistic, uh, culture and worldview that will lead them to an early death. And, and you can't, Find a college athlete, or it's hard to find very many college athletes that have played at the biggest universities to the smallest universities, that if you go to their social media feeds, there will be some sort of two, three, four minute highlight reel that they've had put together, and it's always set to rap music, always. And it's always set to some of the most uh, violent, debaucherous rap music. I, I, I don't, we're not going to play the lyrics or the or the music, but I think we have clips of like uh, some of the best college players from last year and the year before and their highlight videos. If you've been on social media, uh, they're all set to rap music. Anybody that follows the sports world and and is on social media has seen these videos. They're all set to rap music, all of them. This is commonplace in football and the whole sports, youth, culture, world. Everything is set to rap music. This is a grooming process. And so if we're wondering how at a nine and under football game are men constantly getting in uh, violent disputes with each other and how we got to a point where someone would bring a gun and shoot an assistant coach in cold blood. Look at the music that these sports are bathed in. This whole rap thing is grooming all of us for a violent mentality, a culture of death. There was a news story. I'm just telling you about. What has become commonplace in sports, you can now, again, I played college football years ago in the 1980s, and, and dancing wasn't a big part of college football in my day. Now, you can't go to a game, pre-game, during the game, where dancing is a huge part of football. And it's because it's, it's all been set to music. Everyone thinks they're shooting a music video. And so I, this news story that uh, and it's a fun, upbeat news story. But it, it shows you the process kids have been uh, put into and how they've been groomed to associate dancing with playing sports. And so but let's play this news clip of some just some peewee football players. And this is all lighthearted. This, this isn't the super negative stuff, but it's an indication of how kids have been groomed to associate music and particularly rap music with the playing of sports. Watch this news clip.
2: From hockey to football, football players dance after they score a touchdown typically. But when a popular song came on in the middle of this peewee football scrimmage, OK, stop what you're doing. you got to watch this. The players couldn't contain themselves. Uh, Players from both sides were enjoying a little nay-nay there. The impromptu dance party broke out on the field, several doing the whip and the nay-nay. And while they were busy dancing, the offense snapped the ball, ran it in for six. Yeah, then they did the dance. The other dance, that is. That is so cute. They were just a little distracted, but they are little ones anyway. All right.
1: Trust me on this. I'm 55. Uh, 48 years ago, when I was seven, 45 years ago, when I was nine, if music had been played during a peewee football scrimmage, half the team wouldn't have broken out in dance. It, it just speaks to this grooming process we've all been going through. And again, the reason why I love that video, that's not inner city. That's not all black football teams. That seem to be a group of suburban, a mixture of black and white kids. And as soon as they hear uh, the song, the music, they start doing the whip and the nay-nay. The, the little white woman broadcast, she knows what they're doing. The, the whole, everybody's in on it. We've all been groomed. And it's a natural instinctive movement or reaction to music being played uh, at a peewee football game. And so I, I this I'm gonna tie it all together here, uh, as it relates to why this is dangerous, and all oh, this rap music is just harmless. It's just, oh, is it really? Is it really? I went to Wikipedia. Uh, Earlier today, just to run down the names of all the rappers who have been murdered, all the rappers who have been murdered. And according to Wikipedia, about 77 rappers or something that have been murdered, close to 80 rappers have been murdered over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, I'm just going to rattle off some of the bigger names uh, that have been murdered. Nipsey Hustle, Pop Smoke, XX x so I don't even know how to pronounce the name, Notorious B-I-G, Jam Master J, Tupac Shakur. I, I definitely remember this one, Mac Dre, because I think Mac Dre was killed by some Kansas City dudes. He's from the West Coast, and that happened when I was living in Kansas City. King Von. Uh, the dude over in uh, Memphis, uh, Young Dolph, uh, Archie Eversall And I certainly remember this one because this this is the first of all of them. Scott LaRock, because KRS-One used to be my favorite rapper when I was a kid. And Scott LaRock got killed in the 80s, probably 1987, 1986. 90, I, I can't remember, but Scott LaRock and KRS-One Boogie Down production. That, that was the original rapper. Murder. But according to Wikipedia, this is just according to Wikipedia, studies, two studies in the mid 2010s concluded that murder was the cause of 51.5 percent of hip hop musicians deaths. That's not saying half hip hop artists die. What it's saying is the hip hop artists that have died because hip hop is a relatively new art form. The hip-hop artists that have died, half of them have died because they were murdered. Friday, we pivoted a bit, talked a little bit about Mike Hickman with uh, Delano Squires, but we focused uh, the beginning of the show on Serena Williams, who uh, wants to have it all and is upset she can't have it all, that she has to make decisions. And one of the decisions she doesn't like is that she has to focus on being a mother as opposed to her tennis career. She's upset that men don't seem to have to make that choice. Delano Squires and I had a great conversation about it. Serena Williams quote, believe me, I've never wanted to have to choose between tennis and a family. I don't think it's fair. If I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, and, and I knew that she said it, but reading it in your column, and, and, and this is like the mind game that has been played on American society, women in particular, that they are disadvantaged by being the person God selected to carry a baby in the womb, uh, they are disadvantaged uh, by child-rearing being seen as their primary responsibility. I mean, don't you know she could be out winning tennis championships if she were a man, she'd be able to do something important and leave that child rearing to someone else. I, I just read this and just think about just like the my what's uh, green has been turned into red, red has been mm. turned into white, blue has been turned into purple, up has been turned into down. That th- there's been an incredible
2: mind game played on the American public. Yeah, Jason. I mean, uh, particularly with with that. Um, that particular situation with Serena Williams, one of the things I said on Twitter is that the second wave feminists really did a number on on the West because it's not just in America. I mean, her sentiment, you you would hear that from, um, you know, a British female athlete or Canadian or Australian. Anywhere where feminism has really taken root, it has convinced women that the way their bodies were designed is a bad thing and that um any industry, any hobby, any, any area of interest that is dominated by men is where they need to be. And anything, and the one thing that only they can do exclusively, which is, which is carry and birth children, um, is something that they should get rid of. So uh, as I've said before, uh, feminism is an ideology that um, destroys femininity in the name of uh, toppling sexism. So it, it was sad to see. But again, the, the larger context of, of my column is that Democrats really are fighting against God and his reality and his creative powers, not, not against conservatives.
1: So there are certain responsibilities that have been a tr- traditionally assigned to males and tr- responsibilities assigned to women. And so Mm -hmm. it's like men, for the most part, I'm just speaking in general, have taken it like, boy, if things get really bad, we're going to die first. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make those sacrifices and take on that responsibility that if there's some life and death situation, I'm going to offer up my life first. And, And I don't see women running. I don't see Serena Williams trying to hop in that lane. Like, okay, you know, if there's going to be a war, let me... Because male athletes used to be drafted into the military. I I don't see Serena Williams wanting to be first in war. Uh, She wants to be first in making money, first in public adulation of being an athlete. But but I I just... I don't see these responsibilities. Men going to take more riskier jobs, do harder labor, work... Uh, And if more of a responsibility falls on child rearing to women, I don't understand why they wouldn't see that as an honor and a duty and a responsibility that they would want to embrace. But Serena has been convinced that Wimbledon titles, I guess, are more important than that child she carried in the womb for nine months. Yeah, I, I just and again, there's no pushback to this. She can say this and the, the whole sports media and everybody else. Say, She's right. Women have it so bad. They have to raise these kids. Uh, you know, she did have the option of keeping her legs closed or making a, her husband wear a condom. Uh, she had a lot of other options.
2: So I, I think there's a couple of things there, Jason. One, to, to be fair to Serena, because I, I read the entire Vogue column. First time I ever read anything in Vogue, thankfully. And um, she, she went on to say, like, no, I really I do want to start a family. She said, I love being pregnant. I was one of those annoying pregnant women, you know, who's always talking about their baby and so on and so forth. I think what it is, is... She's she's finally having to, to look the lie that feminists have been telling women for a long time square in the face, which is you can have it all. But is it is it possible, for instance, since the beginning of time, did, did women have the, the, the intellect and the physical strength, let's say, to, to build a hut in the 1400s? Sure, it's possible. Um, could women, uh, you know, shoot an M16 on the battlefield? Sure, that's possible. But can any man under any circumstance, regardless of his health, wealth, uh, or, or anything else ever get pregnant? No, that's impossible. So all of, the, the, all of that activity is reserved for one class of people. And the, the women that came Serena, before Serena Williams told her that she doesn't have to choose, she should never have to choose um, between the, the function Right, that, that her body was formed for and the things that she wants to pursue on her own. But at 41, right, which she technically would be a geriatric pregnancy. I know that because, you know, well, I won't say how I know that, but after 35, they, they, that's what the doctors will tell you. He's like, okay, you're geriatric. But at 41, she realized she does have to choose. And this is something that men don't, you don't, you never hear men complaining about this one because men don't carry the babies. But the other part of it is that men understand that leadership comes with obligations and responsibilities. But again, feminism as an ideology says that women can have all the benefits of being men but pay none of the costs. So as you said, this is why they never talk about the disparity in workplace fatalities because I think over 95% of workplace, workplace fatalities are of men. And and the skyscrapers that we see when we go to New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, everybody says, wow, what beautiful architecture. No one ever thinks, wow, I wonder how many guys died building this building in 1936. So women, um, feminism teaches women to ask for the sun, but only for its light and never for its heat. And, And Serena Williams and the women who are in her position, oftentimes when you hear them, they get together, they they complain about having to make choices and everybody looks to me and emotional labor and so on and so on and so forth. And you almost never hear men complaining about these things because they realize that, look, this is, it pay, you got to pay a cost to be the boss. So when things are going well, everybody in my family eats when they're not going well, it all falls on my shoulders. But thank God he gave me broad shoulders to hold up under this weight. And I'm not going to spend my life online complaining about it. So that's why you don't see guys getting around in circles talking about how hard it is to do this or do that and and everybody wants, you know, piece of me and my time. You know, guys will say sometimes, yeah, in sports it's difficult for me to leave my family, but it's it's a if if it's a lament, it's a lament that I don't get to spend more time with my family, not that my family looks to me for certain things. If you understand what I'm saying. So I, I feel sorry for Serena Williams because again, she's been sell, sold a bill of goods a, as have many other women and, and quite frankly, a lot of men. And as I said, I tie it to the larger story arc, which is that that Democrats, even though they say they hate Christian nationalism, they have religious impulses underpinning their ideology and and their primary one is they think that they create they can create Um, Reality out of nothing in the same way that God does. So that's why, um, as I said in the piece, their first fight is always for the dictionary. Um, And I went through a litany of terms. Right. You pregnant men and people with the capacity for for pregnancy. Excuse me. And um, ex cons to returning citizens. Right. Homeless people to unhoused persons. Right. Is is always a fight to control the dictionary. Um, and in that way, Democrats function in like prosperity preachers. They think they can name it and claim it. They think they can decree and declare and that what they say um, will come to pass. And, and one of the pieces I talk about is in the scriptures, the Bible says that Jesus told the wind and the waves to obey and they calmed down, right? You see, there's a couple of places in the gospel. And my, my contention is that Democrats think that they can do the same thing through their climate change legislation. So Nancy Pelosi looks at Christ and she says, look, if the Son of of God can make the weather obey him, surely the Speaker of the House can do the same. But what they are finding and what they will find is that God is no respecter of persons and he won't be moved off his throne, no matter how many rebellious people claim to have his creative powers. And, And that's why they get so angry, Jason, when people like you and I don't obey them. When we say no, we, uh, uh, whether you call them Kate, Laura, Bruce, that person is a man, right? They get upset because they realize that they can't control um, our tongues and they can't make us submit to their, to their language. So um, Serena Williams fits within that because again, she's fighting against God and the world that he created, created in the way that he created it.
1: All right, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe, hit the likes. Leave me a comment here at Apple or on Spotify. Give me that five-star review. Join the fearless army. Get your fearless army swag. Be a man and have a great weekend.